Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Coming up next on the Liverbird Sailing Podcast. Like we used to live in the city and we had these routines that we we depended on. You were always one car accident away from disaster, but you weren't really thinking about that. And in the same way, life was always unpredictable, but we, we made these assumptions. So I think when we bought our sailboat, we stopped making those assumptions about life. We realized that safety is an illusion and we had to be willing to take some risks in order to really truly live our lives without regret. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Annika. On the Liverbird Sailing Podcast, I chat with awesome people who live, work, and travel on their sailboats. My guests are sharing inspiring stories and real-life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. Most people I have talked to in this podcast are couples who are fairly new to the Liverbird life but every now and then, I like to get a little bit of a different perspective. Today's guest, Tanya Hackney, can certainly give us that as we talk about how she, her husband, and their five kids sailed in North America, Central America, and in the Caribbean for a decade. And by the way, when they started, all the kids were under 10 years old, and the youngest one hadn't even been born yet. Tanya and I had a lovely chat, but we barely scratched the surface of her experience. Thankfully, Tanya's brand new book called Leaving the Safe Harbor, The Risks and Rewards of Raising a Family on a Boat has just been published and there is a lot more detail and story in there. I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy and I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It was absolutely wonderful read. Now here is my chat with Tanya. This adventure that you did, or really, I guess it was more of a lifestyle change, it was a long-time dream for you, as it is for many of us, of course, and I sometimes feel that I can't wait even for two years to get started, but for you, while your adventure lasted a decade, it also took just about as long to plan for it, so Please tell me, how did you keep the dream alive for so long through all these studies and jobs and kids and buying houses and all that? Like, what were the things you did to remind yourself throughout that time that there's something to look forward to? Like, this is where we go. And well, I think it helped that we had had a taste of what it was going to be like. So we, my husband and I grew up in Florida. We were high school sweethearts. He was a sailor. I was not. Um, but his parents said, taken sailing vacations with him when he was a kid. And so we went on a trip when we were newlyweds in our 20s uh, with his dad and stepmom on their boat. 
And we went down to Dry Tortugas National Park, which is this just beautiful, pristine water, very isolated. We did the sailing trip. And there's a famous story where something broke on the way home and we weren't able to run the engine. And so we ended up doing this long overnight sail in very light wind, but it was just amazing. It was an amazing night with a million stars in the sky and phosphorescence in the water. And I think it was on that trip that I I got a feel for what life could be like. And my husband knew because he grew up sailing. And it was really when that bug bit, you know, where we said, this is what we want to do. And of course, we were yuppies in Atlanta. And then we had a bunch of kids. And But the whole time, I think because we had had that taste of what it was like, that's what gave us the motivation to to work towards that. The other things that we did were we got out of debt. We uh, started our marriage many thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in debt. And we read a book called Larry Burkett's Financial Guide for Young Couples. And that helped us get out of debt. Because if you are only working to pay the bills or to pay the credit card off or to pay the mortgage, then you can never save up for a boat or you can never work to break free. So we were taking some practical steps towards breaking free. Uh, My husband was developing a computer career that ended up allowing him to be a digital nomad. Uh, It certainly wasn't that way when we started, but it ended up being a great career for doing what we do. He just needs to have internet and he can kind of work from anywhere. And then on the sort of more philosophical or emotional side, we subscribed to sailing magazines and Cruising World, and we read every book that we could get our hands on about families having sea adventures. We read about like all the disaster stories, you know, uh, boats that were wrecked on reefs and families that spent time in life rafts. I mean, we read every sea adventure that you can think of. And that kept that dream alive for a long time. And then my husband would occasionally go out on our back deck in Atlanta and he would have his sailing magazine open and he would sit in the chair on the back deck in just the right way where he could just sort of see the sky and he couldn't see the neighbor's house and he could imagine that he was sitting on the deck of a boat. That's my favorite thing, (laughs) that he was able to, you know, mentally put himself there. And then he was racing sailboats on Lake Lanier, you know, even in landlocked Georgia. So we were always doing things to remind ourselves that that is what we wanted. And it took us a really long time, like 15 years from, well, maybe uh, like 12 years. Yeah, we've been on the boat for about as long as it took us to get here. So, And we weren't just sitting around, you know, we were working and saving money and raising children. and But always there was this idea that just would not go away. And we kept feeding that idea until we made it reality. That's perfect. And that is a great combination of things, the real life experience, the the dreams and the inspiration from magazines and such, and uh, probably just talking about it between yourselves as well on the ongoing basis. But that is amazing. I'm so glad to hear that even though it took a long time intentionally, but that it still was a dream because sometimes I'm sure there are a lot of people who continue to talk about what they want to do until it's too late and they never do it. So it's a great example, I think, why you have that. Yes, it can take a long time. Just because it takes a while, it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. So that is fantastic. But tell me about your boat, Take Two. I honestly, being new to sailing, I didn't realize that wooden catamarans were even a thing. So (laughs) tell us a little bit about your boat that you ended up buying then. This is a very unusual boat. It is made out of wood. It was built in South Africa in 1991. Actually, it was built the year that my husband and I were riding the school bus together (laughs) in high school. I love that because it's like these two stories, you know, the story of our boat and the story of our relationship kind of begin at the same time. And then, you know, sometime in the future, they, they meet we had looked at another boat. We had looked at a Tayana 55, which is a, was a solid glass boat. And it was a monohull, very, uh, very solid cruising boat. Uh, we had three children at the time. We were kind of just at the beginning of thinking about doing that. And that, that did not work out. We hemmed and hawed and waited too long. And some other couple swooped in and sailed that boat away. And we were devastated. We realized that we really wanted to do it. And that actually the disappointment of, you know, failing to buy that other boat is what solidified and crystallized our desire 
to, to buy the next boat that came along, you know, and when an opportunity knocks, you don't ignore it because it might not knock again. And then the beautiful thing is our boat, the name is Take Two, and it is, it was our second chance. It was exactly like in the film industry, you know, when they say Take Two. So we got a second chance. Uh, my husband found the boat online. It is a custom catamaran. It's not like any other boat that you'll ever find. Uh, it does, you know, it does rot. There's a downside to every boat building material. And so he got really good with epoxy and uh, patching it and fixing it. And it's a labor of love. And it, it because nobody wanted it, it kind of sat for a while. Uh, people were afraid of the wooden boat and the custom. The nature of a custom boat is that you can't, you know, you can't just call the factory and have them send you something. You have to find or make everything for the boat. He actually liked that about the boat. And it made it affordable for our then family of six because nobody else wanted it. We knew when we stepped aboard that the boat was our boat. We just knew. We, it's like, I always tell people, it's like falling in love. You just know. That is perfect. And I mean, yeah, I, you weren't looking for a catamaran. But if you looked at a monohull first, was it kind of a, it just happened to be there and you went to see it just out of curiosity and then you fell in love or... Did you switch your thinking at some point? Like, maybe we need a catamaran. Well, between when we saw the first boat and when we decided to buy the second boat, we had an extra kid. So then we were a family of six and we realized they weren't going to stay little forever. We were outgrowing uh, the monohull idea. We had also spent, you know, we, we turned our disappointment into, you know, more fuel for our dream. We would go to the boat shows. When we couldn't actually go sailing, we would go climb around on, on new boats. And I think probably it was at the Miami Boat Show or maybe the St. Pete Boat Show where we had spent some time on monohulls and on catamarans. And we just realized that if we were going to have a big family aboard, that we would need a catamaran from a space standpoint, from a stability standpoint. Also, when you're bringing that many people with you, you don't know who's going to get seasick. And it seemed like it was going to be a more comfortable pretty much all around yeah, for sure. And that makes total sense with uh, as you end up being a family of seven. And actually, one takeaway that I took away from your book was that, okay, if Tanya can do this with her husband and five kids and two cats. Surely I can do this with one partner and one dog. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, I. that's kind of how I feel like that is partly why I decided to write the book and share the story. I thought like, we did it. It was hard. Everything we did, we did the hard way. If we did it this way, other people will find a way to do it too. If you kind of show people what they think, oh my gosh, that's impossible. If you show them that you did something impossible, then it makes it, you know, more possible for others. Absolutely. It became a lot more feasible to think about and, and seeing your process through it all and how you did it, it was like, well, that would be, you know, remove the five kids and that would be what I would be dealing with. So surely that would be a lot easier. But, you know, managing that many people and particularly young ones must be a challenge. Like, how do you keep everybody safe on board? Like you mentioned, the catamaran is great. It's got some more space. But how do you keep an eye on on everybody? Uh, certainly now it's much easier Uh they all swim. They, you know, know how to take care of themselves now. But at the beginning, when we moved aboard, actually, when we bought Take Two, we had a seven, six, four, and one and a half year old. And then we moved aboard a year after we bought the boat. And the hardest age, I won't lie to you, is between like age one and two. When they're mobile, they can crawl and they can walk around and they can get into things, but they can't really swim well. And so that's the time when you worry the absolute most about somebody falling overboard. And so the youngest child gets your undivided attention. If they're outside on deck, they have a life jacket on. There were protocols in place to make sure that someone was always keeping an eye. Indoors, I mean, part of what, why we loved our boat was because it has a completely enclosed cockpit. So there is no way you could fall out of our cockpit. There are some production boats that kind of have this beautiful open layout. It's comfortable and convenient, but not maybe as safe. And so we loved our boat because it was safe for small children. No one was allowed out of the cockpit without an adult. And everybody knew that. There was no exception to that rule, and that helped. And we put nets on the lifelines, and we had rules about life jackets when we were underway, which helped. Uh, I started to write a blog post once called How to Keep Your Toddler Alive on the Boat. And I showed it to my husband and he said that it, I should not post it, that it would freak out the grandparents. 
And he said, maybe we should wait till they all survive to adulthood before we write these things down. (laughs) So, you know, discipline and life jackets and tethers and they need to trust you and they need to obey you. I know that's an old fashioned concept, like having your children obey, but on a boat, obedience is life and death, you know. That one hand for you, one hand for the boat. The first rule of falling off the boat is don't fall off the boat. <laughs> we had all of these things that we would say to them. But in the end, if mom says, come, you come. If mom says, sit down, you sit down. If she says, hold on to the lifelines, hold on. I mean, you you can't have somebody arguing with you in, the, in a storm at sea. You can't have someone arguing with you about whether they want to wear a life jacket or not when things are getting rough. So discipline was a big part of keeping our kids safe. I guess it helped that all your kids were not teenagers. They were younger than that before you started. So they grew up, literally grew up on the boat. So by the time they maybe got to that teenager years, they knew that it, it's literally life and death. This is probably not something to to um, be rebellious about or anything like that. And I love that you mentioned in your book that you had this bell that you would always ring. And if that rang everybody needed to come up no matter what like it was <laughs> absolute must and uh it seems like that stayed throughout the whole decade of sailing oh yeah except for now i ring the bell and no one comes and i get all irritated and i go looking and they all have headphones on or you know little plug phones inside their ears and i'm like i rang the bell why didn't you come it's time for dinner and they're like i didn't hear you i didn't hear you so you know there's that it's the teenager thing yeah whatever it's not because they're disobedient it's because they can't hear me Exactly. Also, having a large crew must have made planning for your passages a little bit more challenging than it is maybe for most people, especially at the beginning when you had a lot of younger kids and, you know, they, I guess you wouldn't know whether they get or if anybody gets seasick until you go and test it out and see who gets seasick and who doesn't. So how did, um, how did you plan for passages and such like longer trips with the small crew on board? So it took us a few tries to get it right. Uh, The first few passages we tried, I mean, there are probably two aspects. It's the planning for the obviously food and keeping everybody comfortable and safe. And then there's the actual like watch rotation and the management of the boat and the family while you're on a passage. We, We believe in baby steps. We did everything in small steps. We never bit off more than we could chew. So our first passages would be like a simple overnight you know, and learning how to do an overnight and what could we handle and what couldn't we handle. And we, the first few passages, we tried the three hour on, three hour off watch schedule. Pretty much we were always single handing because someone was in charge of the boat and someone was in charge of the kids. But the three hours on, three hours off wrecks you. You cannot do that for more than a night or two, you know, surviving on these little cat naps before you just feel like, you know, you've been in a car accident or something you do not look good after a couple of days of that and so we started doing longer watches anytime we had more than a night or two of watch we did long watches so I I'm a night owl my husband's an early morning person it was very convenient I would take the you know 8 p.m to 2 a.m and then he would get up at 2 I would make him a pot of coffee and he would stay up until dawn and then I would get up uh feed the kids breakfast he would take a nap and then uh he would get up from his nap and take over and I would take an afternoon nap and we could go like that for days. So I think our longest passage that we ever did was eight days between maybe Georgetown, Bahamas and Puerto Rico when we were headed to the Caribbean. And we, you can do that sustainably because, you know, your six hour off watch is roughly a night's sleep. So as long as you can get a nap. Um, And then of course, during the day, the kids would help. They were taking watches. Our oldest was 13 before he took a a night watch. We just always had an adult sleeping in the cockpit when you have a kid on watch so that they've got someone there to ask questions of. It was nice because we raised our own crew and they, you know, they knew the protocols and they knew what to do. And it was helpful to have an extra pair of eyes. Uh, The passage planning uh, was tricky just because we didn't know. And we do have kids that get seasick uh, two of us never get seasick. Uh, my husband always medicates. He always gets seasick. And so he just prevents. He just, he hasn't felt seasick in many years because he knows to take the medicine before we leave. One of our kids has debilitating seasickness where even when he's medicated, he's kind of useless, but he's at least not miserable. And then some of them are kind of, you know, if the weather's nice, they're happy. And if the weather's not nice, they're not happy. But fortunately, most of our life is being anchored in beautiful places and not 
horrible days at sea. So, I mean, there have been plenty of passages, but I want to say I think they're worth it. I think the, the hardship is worth it at the end when you get to the new place. The food part is tricky when you have seven people. I think whenever you read a cruising book, uh, like the Lynn and Larry Party books, I ate up every cruising book. I read everything. And I'm thinking, I think Karen Feeding of the, of the Sailing Crew is a Lynn Party book that I really loved because she was talking about planning for a bigger crew. But otherwise, it was couples, you know, planning for you know, overnight passages. And I'm like, well, how am I going to keep seven people, you know, happy and well-fed? We discovered that the first day out, nobody feels like eating real food. And so we do cheese, crackers, pickles, olives. We usually do that kind of snack lunch and people kind of snack all day until they feel good. And then my goal during a passage is to make one hot meal a day if the weather allows. And that might be a nice lunch or it might be a nice dinner. But we've developed these patterns and traditions over time just by trial and error. Lots of error. <laughs> of course. So now that you mentioned food, I'll have to ask because I'm trying to picture it like even a catamaran fridge, the ones that I've seen in like more production type catamarans, they're quite small. So do you have a large fridge or did you just become expert at sliding food into whatever slot you could find on the boat? Uh, yes. Well, first thing to know about our custom catamaran is that it is not, we are not camping. I think that became a mantra for us probably after the first year or two after we had lived with the boat and traveled with the boat. We started to think of the boat as a home instead of a vehicle. And so once we began to think of it as our home and realized how much time we were going to spend at anchor or in a dock or, or at a dock, We started thinking about how can we make this a comfortable home and we renovated the galley and we put in larger fridges and we have a standalone fridge that can also be a freezer. It's uh, like an angle. So we have extra, we have an auxiliary fridge and um, we renovated the galley again 10 years later and guess what? The fridges got a little bigger again. <laughs> so we have um, two fridges and a freezer and it's enough and We also supplemented with rice and beans. I mean, your fresh food, even if you have it refrigerated, isn't going to last more than a couple weeks. And if you want to go off the beaten track and you want to go spend some time in the out islands of the Bahamas or anchored, you know, where there's nobody else, you're going to run out of fresh food and you're going to eat freeze-dried food. We use a lot of the Thrive Life products and that has been great. Um, I think we eventually, like, I think the only places we really ran out of food and had to depend on emergency stores were in the Bahamas and in San Blas in Panama, where we were just pretty far, time, long times between grocery stores. And when you're feeding that many people, you do, you do run through a lot of supplies. You know, and also we store grain. I bring grain and I grind my own grain. So we will never run out of bread um, or pancakes or pasta because we can make all that stuff from hand. I did it. I'm kind of hardcore. So I like, I like, you know, a loaf of bread that used to be a seed. So that was fun. That part of learning how to do that was fun for me. Yeah, I bet. Oh, gosh, I'm still trying to learn how to make, you know, a sourdough loaf from all the ready-made ingredients that I can possibly get. So you clearly like to do <laughs> things from the beginning or really from scratch. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's a great skill to have. It's just a great skill to have. I mean, the pandemic showed us that if the supply chain is disrupted, you know, I noticed when flour started disappearing off of the grocery store shelves, I ordered grain because I thought, well, I just need to take one step back. And I was glad that I had those skills. And in any kind of survival situation, it's good to know how to make things from scratch or build things or fix things. Uh, we, we try to be resourceful. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I referenced earlier that I don't have kids, but I thought it was so enlightening to read about your philosophy about raising kids. And it's so easy to imagine a family of seven living on land, you know, in a modern, materialistic North American household. That there must be so much stuff everywhere, you know, toys and gadgets and there's gifts and birthday gifts and Christmas gifts and grandparents give gifts and all this stuff probably accumulates over or would accumulate over the years. But of course, on a boat, none of that can actually happen because there just isn't room for any of that. So in the book, you talk about changing your kids' mindset about birthdays to collecting memories instead of gifts. I really love that. And I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit more about this and maybe share an example of a birthday celebration that involved collecting memories? Sure, I would love to. Uh, this philosophy, I think, started before we moved on to the boat. You know, on the one hand, we tell our kids that money can't buy happiness and that what brings us happiness is connection with other people. And then we do the exact opposite of what we say. We shower them with material things and we give them sort of an adrenaline serotonin rush on Christmas morning and on birthdays. We just give them all this stuff, which actually it does make us happy. At least it makes us happy temporarily. So it's it's a little dishonest. We say, oh, things won't make you happy. And then we give them a bunch of things and they feel happy. And so I think we're sending a mixed message there. So we had begun to question the whole Christmas philosophy and birthday philosophy. And so it wasn't hard once we said, okay, well, now we don't even have space. So we're not just cutting back. We're going to have to completely revamp these holidays. So we had some initial success with a Christmas that involved no presents. And I didn't know how it was going to go, but it was such a wonderful memory. Uh, we were in the Bahamas and we went snorkeling and we had, I made a special meal and everyone was happy. And I realized, okay, they don't need the stuff. I think we're going to be okay. And then the birthdays were so fun because we could say to the kid, what would you like to do for your birthday? If you asked my kids, they would each have a favorite birthday. I think one that comes to mind, my husband took uh, my then 15 and 16-year-old oldest boys uh, on Flying Pirates, an ATV tour in Bocas del Toro, Panama. And we had kind of done some research and that seemed like something that would be really fun. And they just set off on these ATVs in the jungle and they came home muddy and dirty and bruised and cut up and they were grinning from ear to ear and they said that was the most fun they had ever had. And then like the next word out of their mouth was, it was not safe. Nothing about that day was safe. It was the most dangerous day we've ever had and it was the most fun. So I heard lots of stories about that day. And then every kid has, has, has memories like that jumping from waterfalls or going horseback riding, going surfing. I don't know. We, we just have tried to make, to make a lot of adventure memories. Yeah, of course. And I mean, you've covered so much ground in the Caribbean that of course there's probably amazing opportunities and unique opportunities to do cool stuff just about anywhere you are. So that is very cool. And I actually did want to talk about uh, your route or the region a little bit because you essentially did uh, like a Caribbean circuit. So I'm wondering, did you have a sort of a rhythm to your uh, adventures and your sailing? Like, did you stay quite a while in one country and then move on to the next? Do you take any longer breaks off the boat? Or what was your sort of rhythm of life when you spent that long uh, in the region? We are on what you might call the no plan plan. There's the boat is very much uh, our home. It moves, yes, but it's also the place where we work and do school and we fix things. And it really depended on the weather, the state of the boat, the state of my husband's job. We were very fly by the seat of the pants. And we would kind of, if you start to feel stag, you know, like you're stagnating in one place, then you, you begin to get that itch to go somewhere else and you start thinking about where you would like to go. We were actually in the Caribbean for about three and a half years, um, the other uh, seven years or whatever. We, in that time, we renovated, you know, the boat, painted the bottom, replaced the engines, uh, replaced the water maker, replaced the batteries. It was a lot of renovations to get the boat to the place where we felt like we could take it farther. 
But every year we would go somewhere. We would go up the East Coast to the U.S. or we would go to the Bahamas and back. And we were taking these longer and longer trips, kind of building up to a time when we could really break away. So in 2016, we left the U.S. and went down the Eastern Caribbean. And then that trip was kind of driven by hurricane season. We knew we needed to be in Grenada by roughly August. Uh, We don't worry so much about June and July, but we knew that really by the time hurricane season got cranking, we needed to be in a safe place. And so, you know, between March of 2016 and August of 2016, we kind of meandered our way through the Eastern Caribbean, staying if we liked a place and leaving if it, if you know, if it was just time to go or... Uh, a couple times my husband had to fly home for work, so he flew out of Puerto Rico and he flew out of Grenada, just had a project that he needed to do. And so sometimes we're driven by that work schedule, uh, sometimes by weather, sometimes by interest. It just depends. It seems like everything works out the way that it's supposed to, even if it isn't exactly what we thought it was was going to be. And then we went uh, west to the Bonaire and then west again to Colombia and Panama and the rest of Central America. And really, really, we slowed down once we went west. There was so much to see and to do and so many interesting cultural opportunities that we really slowed down. But I think it's because we were enjoying ourselves and we had taken such a quick pace, you know, getting south to Grenada, that we really wanted to slow down and enjoy it. Yeah, for sure. And so obviously one aspect of cruising in the Caribbean and Central America region is the is the hurricanes. So I assume you spent a few hurricane seasons hiding from them somewhere. Do you have a favorite hurricane uh, hideout place that you uh, used? If you have kids, then your schedule is also driven by where the other kids are. And so uh, Grenada was a haven for other families on boats. I mean, we just met so many wonderful people traveling in Grenada and in the summer there, that's, there's just gobs and gobs of children and our kids were really happy there. And then, uh, we spent a hurricane season in Panama and that one, we were a little bit lonely. We were in Bocas del Toro and it turned out that all the kids were in shelter bay in the canal zone. And so, you know, maybe we would have chosen differently if we had known where the kids were. We were in Panama for a whole year. So we, we dug deep there, but probably my favorite hurricane hole is the Rio Dulce in Guatemala. That was a special place for us fulfilled a lot of the needs and goals that we had had for our boat, um, just culturally and relationally, the things that we had wanted for our kids. Everybody was learning Spanish, making friends with not just other boat kids, but also locals. And we were there long enough to really get to know the country. And and you'd never had to check the weather once. It was either raining or it wasn't raining. You didn't have, you're 30 miles inland up a river and you didn't have to worry about, you know, anything. We never checked the weather once. It was a relief. That reminds me of a time when I lived in Australia and you really, you did not have to worry. It was either sunny or it was cloudy. That's it. It was going to be warm. It was, you know, you don't need to plan your life around it. Like here in Canada, you know, you check the weather before you go because maybe it's minus 25 Celsius and you need everything you own (laughs) to to wear. So yeah, it's a odd thing that you don't have to, if you don't have to worry about a weather. Yeah, it is. And when you live on a boat and you're, you know, if you're traveling and you need to be in the lee of an island so that, you know, you need to know which direction the wind is coming from so that you can be in a safe place. And if there's a storm coming, you need to make sure that the you have enough scope out and that the anchor's not going to drag. And you're always thinking about the weather. You're always aware of the moon phase and the wind direction and the depth of the water. And to be able to come into a place, you know, a safe harbor and not have to think about it. It's such a relief. Yeah, that is a a very good break from the usual then, that's for sure. We're in the Florida Keys now, and I do not like being in the Florida Keys in the summer. It's hot, and it's, you know, a little bit unpleasant and buggy, and then the, like, the constant threat that a big storm is going to rake over you. You're always thinking about where you're going to be or not be, and um, it's hard. We're in a tough place because our kids are happy here. This is, we're in a place where we have come through many times, and we've built friendships here, And when we came back from traveling, we had teenagers who wanted, you know, some of the normal things. They started taking some college classes and they bought vehicles and they have jobs ashore and we're like trapped here and it's hurricane season and where, you know, we always have this contingency plan. What are we going to do if a storm comes? It's much easier to be, you know, in a hurricane hole somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Or have the freedom to, you know, pick up and go without worrying about 
all the activities for seven people and their commitments and all that. So it's a whole different uh, lifestyle that you have now back in Florida, for sure. <laughs> I'm so glad. I've never been so grateful uh, just in the last couple of years that we did the travel when we did it with the kids, the ages that they were, that we built those memories when they were young before they you know, needed to start their own adventures and and then to some degree before the world really changed in you know 2020 i i just feel really really grateful that we didn't wait till later that was the thing that drove us when we were young people where we were kind of saying well we we could do what everyone else does and just wait till we retire but there's always that question what what if some what if we can't what if life interrupts what if we get sick what if we have an aging parent that needs our help what if we have a you know a kid that has an emergency and then we we can't travel or you know life Life throws you curveballs sometimes, and so I'm glad we, I'm glad we did what we did when we did it. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm sure the pandemic now has opened the eyes of many people to see that yeah, there could be something that nobody really thought was going to be even possible. So I think it's gotten a lot of people to think about their future in the long term. Like, well, maybe I shouldn't wait for the next twenty years before I. I said, Sal, maybe I should work on it sooner because who knows what's going to happen in the next even five years. <laughs> like, if there's a lot of unknowns out there. I think that it was always unpredictable. I think that life was always uncertain. But I think if you had some control over your circumstances or if, you know, like like we used to live in the city and we had these routines that we we depended on, you were always one car accident away from disaster, but you weren't really thinking about that. And in the same way, Life was always unpredictable, but we we made these assumptions. So I think when we bought our sailboat, we stopped making those assumptions about life. We realized that safety is an illusion, and we had to be willing to take some risks in order to really truly live our lives without regret. Yeah, that's really well said for sure. And then there's the name of the book, just about risks and rewards of raising a family on a boat. So there it is. There yep. you go. Dovetails right in. Yeah. Well, you referenced uh, your husband, Jay, a few times in passing that he he uh, worked from the boat and that he sometimes flew back home to the U.S. Uh, for work. So can you share what was it that he did for a living uh, when you were sailing? And of course, everybody will want to know, like, how did you get internet in all these places? <laughs> I wish that I knew what he did. I had never, I've, he's tried to explain it to me and in like the most simple terms. So he's a database engineer and he does lots of other things besides that, but that's one of the things that he does. And so he needed fast internet and people would say, oh, there was great internet in such and such a place. But what they meant by great internet was that they could check Facebook or that they could uh, send email or get a weather, you know, get some weather. He needed high down upload and download speeds. And so Every year that we traveled to the Bahamas, he spent time in a Batelco office getting a SIM card for our phone and trying to use the phone as a hotspot. Or we would be anchored in Georgetown and he would be connected, you know, in the afternoon to this network. And when that kind of went bad, he would go and connect to this other network. And he was, it was always a scramble trying to find the internet. I remember driving back, piloting back and forth across um, a beach once in the anchorage and he was checking internet speeds on his computer. And he said, okay, when I say stop, we're going to drop the anchor. And so we had a kid on the bow. I was driving the boat and he was checking the internet speeds. And when he said, stop, this is the place where we need to anchor to get the internet. We stopped the boat and the kid dropped the anchor. So those are the funny stories. But we somehow figured out how to get enough internet so that he could keep checking in at work. Passages, you have to really plan around passages because he would have to be, you know, completely unhooked at that point and he would just have to say to a client you know I'm going to be out of the office for the next <laughs> out of the office <laughs> whatever office you know for three days and I won't be reachable it's some it's hard because sometimes sometimes his clients know that we live on a sailboat and they think that that's super cool and sometimes they have no idea that he's working from the Bahamas or whatever and so what does that mean to be completely out of the office and you don't even have email you can't even make a phone call how how is that even possible so he somehow figured that out. I feel really grateful for what he does because it leaves me free because he's able to continue making an income. I feel free to homeschool the kids and make the food and help manage our home. And it works. It somehow works for us. In the Central America, it was much easier to get SIM cards and data. Just, I think, the availability of cell phone networks 
you're not changing countries as as often. We kind of joke, we did the Digicel tour of islands. We would stop in every, you know, Digicel store on the way down the Eastern Caribbean. And then, of course, in the French countries, it was Orange. And we were constantly switching the SIM card and buying data. Um, And then it got a little bit easier as we were in mainland places. Yeah, I bet. So it is always at least a little bit of a struggle. I was kind of hoping that you would have some secret sauce for this. (laughs) Like, oh, we had great internet the whole time. (laughs) We've had like four different kinds of boosters. We had weird shaped boosters. We've had antennas at the top of the mast. We've had weird looking apparatuses taped to things, you know, (laughs) taped to the backstay. Yeah, we've, we have actually, we were in San Blas and he was trying to just check in at work and we um, put a cell phone in a Ziploc bag and hoisted it to the top of our mast to try and <laughs> try and get the signal for the closest tower. It definitely is a limitation if you're traveling this way. If you are on sabbatical, like what a privilege and a luxury to not have to check in with work. I mean, it it's then a trip and not you know, a lifestyle. So we chose to do it as a lifestyle, but every now and then we look at these people who are completely unplugged and we feel a little jealous. You know, we won't ever go to Cuba because unless he can take some time off work, there's just, you know, no connectivity. Even in San Blas and Panama, when we were, you know, hoisting the phone to the top of the mast, even there we had to choose carefully where we could travel or not travel just so that he could check in with work. Well, that's good to know that I'm not missing out on something. There isn't a a great solution out there yet. So we shall... uh... Wait and see what the technology wizards of the world will come up with in the next couple of years and uh, keep our fingers crossed. Do you know, it gets better. It gets better and better. It never, every time we've been out, um, they have, they're figuring out new and better technology. Exactly, exactly. And so obviously, you know, uh, we mentioned that uh, your kids literally grew up on the boat. Uh, But I'm curious from your perspective, living this lifestyle, traveling on a sailboat for a decade with your family and this may be a a difficult question to answer because it has been so long but how has this experience changed you do you think that's a good question i probably probably that's why i wrote the book was because i wanted to explore the ways in which my life on the boat has changed me Uh, the lessons that I learned. I would love to say that like when I look back at some of the early chapters (laughs) when we were sailing and kind of my neurotic impulses and I'm such a chicken that I laugh at some of the things I was afraid of now. Um, Some of the things are still there. Sometimes I'm still a chicken. Sometimes I live my life despite my fears. The fears don't necessarily go away. Um, I do think it made me a more flexible person if I had to pick uh, one of the ways that that living on the boat has changed me. Uh, I was a planner before and I'm not much of a planner anymore. That doesn't really work when you're on a boat. You, you'll you just spend most of your time frustrated. If you pick a day on the calendar and you circle and you say, we are leaving on this day and not one day later. And then, you know, something breaks or the weather changes or you or one of your kids gets sick. You just spend a lot of time frustrated. And so I've been able to let go a lot of of a lot of anxiety about planning and preparing. You just go with the flow and you say, when people ask me, when are you leaving? I say, I'm leaving on the right day and not one day sooner, like whatever that day is. And it might be like, you have to have a full moon and mom can't be on her period. And, uh, you know, nobody has to be sick or disabled in any way. And Jay has to be free from work commitments and the weather has to be perfect. You have all of these variables and somehow it all just comes together. And then you're like, all right, let's go. And we go but we don't circle a date on the calendar. So that flexibility was a really big part of a w- something that really changed. I became a lot more flexible. I would also say it changed the way that I feel about other human beings. I think I noticed it when I came back from the Caribbean that people who were kind of invisible to me before, suddenly I noticed people that were maybe not noticeable. I think like the homeless guys, I made, I made friends with homeless guys in the park. The, there's a lady who works at, at the grocery store that I go to and she works at the deli counter. And one day I, I was, you know, just picking up some ham and cheese or something. And I heard her accent and I said, where are you from? And when she told me, I was like, I've been there. I've been to your, to your island. And then we would have these conversations and I was always pretty friendly before, but I think I'm a little bit more aware of my place as a member of the human family 
in a way that I wasn't before. And the just the realization that, you know, I could have been born anywhere at any time. There's nothing special about, like, there's so much accidental about where I am and the privileges that I have. I'm very humbled by that and grateful for it. And I'm, I'm just aware that, you know, there's a whole world out there. And I wouldn't have seen that if we hadn't traveled. And our kids wouldn't have recognized or appreciated what they have had they not seen, you know, other parts of the world and met other people. And I feel really grateful for the human family and the connections that we made, not just with other sailors, but also with um, the locals that we met and have befriended and still stay in touch with. Yeah, that's really beautiful and insightful. And that really comes through in the book. Uh, I noticed myself thinking as I was reading through it, like, wow, that's a really, really beautifully explained story that shows often that sort of human aspect and, and different sort of human interactions that you had uh, throughout the trip. So um, that is definitely one of the reasons why I really loved reading the book. And obviously, I would argue that your book is a resource and a source of inspiration. But I'm wondering, would you have um, any other resources to share for someone else, say, uh, maybe a family who is thinking about doing something similar? Do you have your go to resources or anything to recommend for somebody? Absolutely. Um, lots of um, friends and other sailing, part of our sailing family have written books and have, have you know, more of the how-to. There's a great resource by uh, Behan Gifford and, I, and, and some other authors uh, called Cruising with Kids. And that's a great book. I think that's much a more practical steps and some of the things to think through. Mine is not really a practical how-to at all. It's truly a memoir of life lessons. It might be insightful and instructive, but not uh, not necessarily practical. Uh, I I mentioned uh, Lynn Party's Care and Feeding of the Sailing Crew. I loved all of their books, and they've been around for a long time. But I think that they are still, you know, absolutely applicable. Uh, there's another one called All in the Same Boat. I'm trying to think of the author, Tom Neal. That's Tom Neal. And that book, that book inspired us. That one was very much, uh, very practical, nitty gritty. And in his, his introduction was so impactful. He and his wife had traveled with their two kids. And his introduction was so impactful that one year for Jay's birthday, before we ever bought the boat, I printed it up on beautiful paper and framed it. And it hung in our house. It hung in both of our houses. And it was about why you would want to go sailing. It was our why. And it really inspired us. Wow, that's amazing. I love having something something like that, an actual visual reminder of that. That is actually a really great idea and a great gift idea. So thanks for that. Holiday season coming yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, if you had a, a, you know, a picture of a sailboat, we had some friends who bought a boat, and she had found a picture of a lagoon sailboat, I think, and she had cut this picture out of a magazine. And she said that picture just sat in their house for years, they would, you know, hang it on the wall, or it would always be laying around and this sort of visual reminder that this is the thing that you're working towards. It's really easy to lose sight of a dream. I think we all have them as young people. And it's easy to, to let it go by the wayside life interrupts. There's all the practical concerns to think about and paying the bills and working and eating and cooking and raising children that you sometimes lose sight of that. And so if you have a visual reminder, you know, that quote that was on the wall or a picture of a boat or the sailing magazine magazines on the coffee table, it helps remind you of your why. Yeah, that's a really good point. I love that. So where can we get our hands on the book that is out? Please do tell us or and where we can follow you online elsewhere. The book, as all books nowadays are, is on Amazon.com. Um, it's available in paperback and digital version. You can also get it at any other book retailer. You can even go into your local bookstore and ask, and they can order it for you. And pretty much anywhere you buy a book, you can you can buy my book. Look for Leaving the Safe Harbor, The Risks and Rewards of Raising a Family on a Boat. And then uh, our website, our blog that we've been keeping since 2008 is at take2sailing.com. That's T-A-K-E-T-W-O-S-A-I-L-I-N-G.com. And then I'm on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram as Take2Sailing. That's fantastic. And I will be sure to link it all in the description so that they are easy to find. 
Tanya, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today and share your story. And thank you for writing the book because it was absolutely fantastic. Oh, I'm so pleased that you loved it. I just hope that it finds readers who are who are ready to break outside the box and and live an adventurous life. I hope you are left inspired by this episode, and if you are, definitely check out Tanya's book. I've put all the links in the description. It would also make a great gift idea since the holiday season is approaching. But before we get to the holiday season, I still have a few episodes left for you. And next week, we'll jump to the other side of North America and across the Pacific. So I will see you next Wednesday. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 